Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. And welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster, and today I'm joined by Rosie Hart, author of the new book, The Royal Wardrobe. You may also know Rosie. She's on TikTok as The Royal Wardrobe. In fact, she was one of the first historians to join TikTok and really go viral there, using the platform to experiment with how her research could be presented to a new audience through short form video content. So her whole deal is fashion history. And what this book is about is the British royal family, starting with the Tudors, so technically the English royal family, um, and just kind of going monarch by monarch from Henry VII through to present day and talking about how about the monarchs themselves, their spouses, their siblings, and other people in their court, and just how they used fashion or not to sort of mark their reign and to identify their personality. So just a bit more about Rosie. So she holds an undergraduate degree in art history from the University of Kent and is currently completing a postgraduate degree at the University of Cambridge in modern history with academic scholarship. So she knows her stuff. If you follow her on TikTok or on Instagram, where she posts a lot of videos as well, you know, she has a real knack at explaining things in a way that makes it so fun and so understandable, no matter what, no matter how much you know about history or about British royal history. And so her book is so great. I got to read an early copy of it, although it's available now so you can buy a copy of your own. I was really happy to read the chapters that are about people that we've talked about on this podcast before, like a certain tits out heroine who we're going to talk to um, today. So please enjoy this interview with Rosie Hart. I'm joined today by Rosie Hart, author of The Royal Wardrobe. Welcome, Rosie. Hi, thank you for having me. So I want to start off by saying, so first of all, your book is called The Royal Wardrobe, but that's also what you're known as on TikTok, correct? Yes, yes, it is. And that's where it all started, where it all came from. You were one of the first historians to really go viral on TikTok. And how did that, how did that happen? Yeah, well, I had just, I'd been looming on TikTok during lockdown, really, like most people were. I think that's when it started to gather momentum. And before that, I had been working with sort of local heritage teams um, in the city where I live. And so I was always kind of had history and one half of my brain. And then I was, you know, enjoying social media on the other side of it. And I just thought, you know, might be interesting to try and combine that. So it started really as more like um more like a diary, I guess, of the things I was researching. And then I would try and condense it down and talk about it on social media. And I realized that, you know, there is an audience for this and people enjoy hearing their history in this very quick, easy to digest way. And that's that's where it started. And I started to take it quite seriously. And yeah, it's it's grown a lot. And I now work with quite a few different museums and galleries around the UK to look at how they can 
bring their collections and their stories onto social media, especially in a way that's going to appeal to younger people and to casual history fans or people who might not even think that they're interested in history. Well, and that really comes across in your book as well, which is written, it's very much for people who may not know anything about about the British royal family. You really sort of hold the hand and explain, okay, this is who this person was. This is what they were about. Can you explain sort of what the book is about, how how it's formatted? Yeah, so the thing that drew me to fashion history initially is the human side of it. Uh, I'm less interested in, you know, the construction of historical garments uh, than I am with the way people interacted with their clothes. That's the thing that interests me about history. And so I knew I wanted to write this book in a way that it, it felt like you were understanding more about the people who wore these clothes and what royal fashion meant to them and just what their identity and their how their clothes reacted with that. So the book starts with the Tudors, it starts with King Henry VII and travels all the way through until present day, looking at each monarch and you know their spouses or their siblings and the people around them and how they use their clothes and really using their clothes to tell their their stories and hopefully make them a lot more tangible and and they might feel a little bit more real that's how i have come to fashion history is to use it to make people from the past feel more relatable so that was my goal with this book well, and it's interesting too, just reading through the book that kind of goes monarch to monarch, how each of them, some of the people, and you mentioned there's also spouses, sometimes mistresses, siblings, some people are really savvy and they know how what they wear can really project a certain image. And then some people just don't care. And that's also interesting. Like there's some people, some monarchs who are just like, whatever. And one of those examples is King um, James the first slash sixth. So can you talk a bit about his unconventional way of dressing? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of monarchs who, when you think of royal fashion, they come to your mind straight away. And James is not one of those at all. In his time, he was considered to be a bit of a frumpy dresser. He wasn't the most attractive man. And we do have to be careful with those criticisms because they may have been embellished by people who didn't agree with his policies and and his his stance on religion or politics but even just looking at his portraits we can see he is not at the forefront of fashion for his time which in the context of the british royal court was very extreme because you'd just gone from having elizabeth i on the throne and she is one of the greatest royal dressers in history she really understood how clothes could be used to cement her image as this larger-than-life figure, this almost god goddess-like woman. And she also loved clothes. It was something of a personal passion for her. So it's this huge shift uh, that, that's happening at the court. And so with James not really taking fashion as seriously as Elizabeth, it, it's very, very obvious. But the root of that, I think, is the fact that he had a very different approach to the concept of monarchy. He wrote a lot about the importance of the monarchy and about the divine right of kings. Um, and he was a very scholarly man. So his you can almost see that his way of um, validating his position comes from his 
scholarly interests and the fact that he was very good at communicating his ideas verbally or in written form. And so he didn't think it was important at all to back that up with his clothes, which may possibly have been to his detriment because it gives people something that they can attack. It gives people something they can poke at. And it has been something that affected previous rulers' um, ability to be taken seriously by their public because a huge part of what it meant to be a monarch was the spectacle and the showmanship and convincing the people around you that, you know, there was something, something special about you that validated your place at the top of society. So you say in your book that he had a peculiar way of living that he refused to change, preferring to eat the same meals and dress in the same clothes each day until they were totally worn out from use. So it's not just a man who didn't wear the trendy fashions of the time. He was wearing the same thing until it fell apart on him. Yes, he just didn't really hold a lot of interest. But what's really quite curious is we know that he paid attention to what other people were wearing. He did a lot to monitor what people could wear at court, but also was fascinated by what other people wore. The Duke of Buckingham, George Villiers, who he had a very special connection with, he took a lot of interest in what he was wearing and George was considered to be the most fashionable man in England at the time and the most attractive man. So that just brings out the contrast even more with this incredibly stylish Duke and then a quite frumpy looking king. But James also loved jewellery and he could elevate his rather uninspiring clothes with some pretty impressive pieces of jewellery, a lot of which he brought with him from Scotland, and then a lot he inherited from um, Elizabeth I. So he had a very broad arsenal of of jewellery that he could use. He also mentioned that he chose to pad his clothing as sort of a makeshift bulletproof vest sort of thing. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so it was very popular for men to pad their clothes in a certain way. The late Tudor, early Stuart period was very much about creating strange shapes on the human body and distorting the the natural shape of the human body. And that was the same for men and women. So men would often cinch in their waists or pad their trousers and their their doublets. But there seems to definitely have been a very different style that the king was using because people were looking at him and going, this just doesn't look right. And so that's where people began to say, well, he is a very paranoid man and this is to sort of protect himself. So his approach to fashion was, if he was forced to consider fashion, was for the most practical purposes. He didn't care about being 100% in keeping with the trends of the time. He didn't care enough to make sure that his padding uh, resembled the padding that other men were using and that it exclusively served the role that he needed it to. So you mentioned that people were talking about what he was wearing. And so for James as an example, but just for everyone, especially pre-20th century people you talk about in your book, what sorts of sources were you looking at to learn about? Because portraits tell one side of the story, but you've got people describing what they think about the monarch. So are you looking at letters and diaries? Yes, letters are very, very helpful dispatches from um, foreign ambassadors. That's often the best way um, to learn about what people were wearing because 
you think in the court, it's the British Royal Court, it's a closed circuit, everybody's seeing the same sort of fashions every single day. And so they might not necessarily note the details of it. But in a time where each country is really developing very distinct styles, uh, and you really had to go out of your way if you wanted to tap into what other countries were doing, these foreign ambassadors would come to James's court and they would see him and they would see the other courtiers and they would describe in a lot more detail how they looked, how they dressed and how they behaved. So that's the most valuable source for finding out how people viewed fashion at that time. And then a little bit more, slightly harder to dissect is looking at inventories and looking at specifically what these people owned um, and using that to validate or debunk what we see in portraits. Okay, so that's a beautiful... Beautiful um, segue into the next topic that I wanted to talk to you about, which is James's wife, Anne of Denmark, because the way you describe the necklines of her dresses is not how she looks in her portraiture. No, and that's really interesting. So we have this frumpy, dowdy, very serious king, but his wife was incredibly glamorous. Anne of Denmark was a very theatrical woman. She loved culture and the arts, and she expressed that in her clothes. She inherited a lot of clothes from Elizabeth I, and she used them as much as she could, turning them into costumes for court performances or adapting them to wear in her daily life. And she took a lot of pleasure in taking part in this world of fashionable expression that her husband had shunned. And one of the things that people, especially foreign visitors, found particularly shocking about her clothes was her extremely low necklines. In fact, I think it was the Venetian ambassador reported back that the neckline of her dresses was so low, they exposed her chest bare down to the pit of her stomach. And we also know that it was very popular at the British Royal Court to paint veins onto their chest and to tint their nipples darker. So the chest was a source of pride for women in the English court, but it was a bit surprising for foreign visitors. And it was really Anne who was spearheading this, probably because she enjoyed court masks so much, which were the the most popular form of court entertainment. And you would often see quite revealing costumes there. And she would take part in those masks. And then she would also bring that a, a little bit of that back into her daily clothes. But yeah, you get a bit of a sense of that from her portraits. They are quite busty, but nothing like what we see described in these letters. But if you go and have a look at the royal funeral effigies that are They're on display in um, Westminster Abbey, but you can can see them very easily online. You will get a bit more of an understanding of how Anne wore her clothes. Most royals, when they died, would have a life-size, either wooden or wax sculpture of themselves placed by their their tomb so people could come and pay their respects. And those effigies would be dressed in their actual clothes or replicas of their actual clothes. And Anne's is made of wood. And the clothes no longer exist that that it was dressed in, but you can see where they've painted the the neckline. So it would be painted. So only the areas that you could see under the clothes would be painted. And you can see how low her neckline would have been. And it cuts below, below her nipple. So you would have been able to see 
everything. So you get a, a lot more an understanding of just how liberally exposed the chess was in that period. Okay, and that also brings us to someone else I was really excited for that to see you mention in your book, um, which is Frances Howard. That was one of the first episodes I ever did of my podcast. And what caught my attention about her as a sort of obscure courtier of the time was the neckline. The first time I saw the portrait, I was just like, whoa, who is this person? And why is that her neckline on her portrait? And then I read the story and read about the murder and everything. So, But then you talk also about the yellow ruffs. Can you... From your point of view as a fashion historian, Francis's story. And now we're just going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. So the thing is, I have allergies. My nose gets stuffy. I get sort of sinus congestion. And it just really can sometimes get in the way of doing things I really want to be doing, like recording this podcast, for instance. But you might have noticed that when you're listening to this podcast, you never hear me sounding like a duck or uh, with a runny nose. I'm never wiping my nose or stuff on the microphone. And that's because luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. So I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies, and the thing is, when I'm using it, you won't even know that I have allergies. My voice sounds so crystal clear when I'm recording and when you're listening to me right now. But also when I'm not doing podcasts, when I'm doing other life-related things, like just going about my day-to-day life, like sitting on the bus or going to work or whatever, going to the movie theaters. I don't have to worry about like, do I have tissues with me? Do I have a handkerchief? Is this noise bothering everybody? Am I being gross? Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. And we're back. Yes, well, like I mentioned briefly earlier, James the First, he tried to ban a lot of fashion trends and things that maybe annoyed him or didn't look too good for his reputation. And one of those things was the yellow ruff because of its connection to this huge murderous plot, a massive court scandal that happened right under his nose. And he was uh, sort of being dragged along through it as collateral damage. And the story, a very brief summary of the story, was 
have Frances Howard, who was a very young girl. She got married to her first husband when she was still a teenager. So she was incredibly young and the marriage wasn't particularly happy. Neither of them really wanted to be married to each other. And so they eventually applied for an annulment and it was successful. And during that time, Frances had met and fell in love with another man. And she decided this was going to be her shot at happiness. So she begins to pursue this relationship with this new gentleman, the Earl of Somerset. And it's all going perfectly well until one of the Earl's friends, a man called Sir Thomas Overbury, begins to complain about Frances and and speculate about her chastity and whether she is as virtuous as she's making herself out to be and basically tries to sabotage the marriage going ahead which Frances is livid about and at first she tries to sort of ruin Thomas Overbury socially in order to get him out of the equation and stop him from influencing her prospective husband Um, but it doesn't work very well And so she turns to murder as the solution. And she calls on quite a few different people to help her. um, And they try quite a few different methods to try and poison Sir Thomas. But the really sad thing is, one of the women who was involved that Frances Howard roped in was her maidservant, Anne Turner. So Anne Turner was very well known in court for helping with affairs and giving scandalous couples the opportunity to meet out of away from prying eyes and so she was considered to be a very trustworthy person which is probably why Frances turned to her for help and it was Anne Turner who was helping to smuggle poisonous tarts and treats and things to Sir Thomas Overbury which eventually contributed to his death. And so when this was taken to court, when Sir Thomas's death was finally investigated, Frances was found guilty, but because of her status, she was spared execution. But those who had helped her, who were not of such a high, high status, they were sentenced to death, including Anne Turner. One of the things that Anne was really famous for was creating the yellow starched ruff where saffron would be added to the starching process, which is what gave ruffs their structure and allowed them to reach these epic proportions and stand upright, uh, which was very popular at the time. And it was obviously very expensive, so it's considered to be a real luxury. And so lots of people at court wore Anne's yellow ruffs. And as the court case sort of gathered more and more attention, it became a real sensation. More and more people began to wear these yellow ruffs because they just enjoyed following this story. And this really annoyed King James because he saw it as sort of almost like a mockery. He had allowed this scandal to play out in his court, which he's supposed to control and and be the guardian of. And he was being dragged through, he was being slandered for, you know, not upholding a good standard in his court. So he decided he wanted these banned. And when Anne Turner was executed, uh, the executioner allegedly attended wearing a yellow starched ruff and yellow cuffs, potentially as a little bit of a dig at her and her character. 
There is a rumor that I've seen repeated in quite a few books that Anne herself wore a yellow ruff to her execution as like an act of defiance. But a lot of primary sources say otherwise and say that she was very sort of solemn and very respectful and and sort of praying for her forgiveness. So I, I don't think Anne was wearing them, but I reckon the executioner probably was and was making a little bit of a dig at her. But that did sort of quell the the craze after that. And it, it really represented the shortcomings of the court and the way that people viewed the court as, as being a little bit lecherous and seedy and contributed to the chaos that unfolded in the royal world during the Civil War. It added to this idea that maybe the monarchy is is not what we need it to be and maybe they're not the right people to be leading us. Well, and also just showing the fact that James tried to ban the yellow ruffs and just no one paid attention kind of speaks to like how much influence did he personally even have, you know? Yeah, because during the Tudor times and even before that, royals would enact sumptuary laws which were used to make sure that people weren't able to dress above their station, even if they could afford to do so. It was mainly to control sort of merchant classes who were accumulating more money. And they weren't super strictly enforced, but they were followed. But it was actually James who got rid of these sumptuary laws when he came to power in England. So he was sort of commanding people to to stop wearing things, but he never tried to enshrine it officially in law, which may have contributed to why people didn't always follow it. He often would try to instruct churches to preach against things that he disagreed with. He had lots of opinions about women's fashion at the time. He didn't like how it was becoming increasingly more masculine. So he instructed um, churches to preach against that, but that didn't work either. And it just became more and more masculine and formed the basis for the next stage of, of women's fashion. So he, you know, as much as he didn't care about fashion, he he did, there was clearly some part of him who appreciated that for other people, it has a lot of power and he still needs to try and, and control the world of fashion in some way. So the final thing that I couldn't, miss the opportunity to discuss with you. So I haven't done an episode about Charles II, but I have talked about his mistresses a bit. And in so doing, I think I was told by somebody from the UK about uh, a particular wig that Charles II allegedly had. And you you talk about it in your book. So can you <laughs> explain what, what that is? Yes. So according to legend, King Charles II had a wig made out of his mistress's pubic hairs. And this isn't it's sort of a small little wig by any means. At this time, a wig meant sort of far below the shoulders, big, thick, bushy, lion's mane style wig. So immediately, that's quite a shocking image to picture in your head. And the legend goes that when Charles was in exile during the interregnum, when the monarchy was briefly abolished, and he began sleeping with lots of women, he would take clippings of their pubic hair and would have it made into a wig. And he would do this over a long period of time and eventually had this full head of hair. At the time, these wigs were called periwigs. 
And then the legend says that he gave it to one of his friends, the Earl of Moray, who passed it down through his family for generations, like a very strange relic, essentially. And one of the Earl's descendants used it to create a club, um, a drinking club in Scotland called the Wig Club. And drinking clubs were very, very popular among especially amongst upper class men you would meet together you would drink you would socialize but because there were so many of them people often wanted to have a gimmick and the wig club it was an offshoot of a very infamous club called the beggars benison and their niche was anything to do with sex and vulgarity they would commission artworks and um glassware and things like that that were made using mm. in the shape of genitals and things like that so the wig club was a an offshoot of this and their gimmick was that they had this wig that was made of the pubic hairs of king charles ii's mistresses and they had some very strange rituals that they would do with this wig if you joined the club the ceremony uh, that you had to complete was putting the wig on kissing it and vowing that you were going to add to the wig with pubic hair from your own romantic escapades and then downing a pint from a tankard shaped like a penis. So it sounds all in all like a very fun club. And it went on for quite some time. It was very famous. But eventually in the early 19th century, drinking clubs lost their popularity and the wig club disbanded. It gets a little bit murky after that. We don't know who had ownership of the wig. It was last seen in a lawyer's office in Edinburgh in the 1930s. But the wig has since gone missing. We have the box that it was in with the wig stand, a sort of carved head of Charles II that it would have sat on, um, along with lots of sources that mention the wig and, and talk about it, it being real. But that's that's all we really have left of it. And now historians have had a lot of debate about, we know the wig itself was real and existed, but is the story that went along with it, is that true? Um, And it's quite possible that the story was fabricated by the wig club in order to give them a gimmick that had some kind of royal pedigree. And Charles II, obviously, as a, a, a royal with a very famous reputation as a womanizer. He's the perfect person to try and tie yourself to. So we don't know 100% if that wig was really made of using pubic hair. I mean, there's a possibility it had pubic hair added to it by the members of the club. We also know that King George IV, so who he reigned in the early 19th century, when he took his famous trip to Scotland, he was either shown or learnt about the wig. And he decided, because he was a big fan of the Stuarts, he was going through a phase where he was just very obsessed with the fact that he had Scottish lineage and he was connected to the Stuarts and also Charles II. He decided he was going to make his own version of the wig. So he began a collection of pubic hair. It's a very measly collection. It does still exist. It's at the University of St. Andrew's Museum. And it's a tiny little snuff box with a few ginger pubes inside and a little letter that says who it was collected by. So even if the wig itself was not made of pubic hairs, it 
people were obsessed with the idea that it was and they were willing to commit to believing it. And it's just an absolutely ridiculous story. I love that you put this in your book. I love the, it's just, you know, because other parts of your book, you're explaining like, oh, this is, you know, the monarchy and here's, I don't know, but it, it just, your book combines these really, and I guess like your TikTok does as well, just kind of like weird stories, but with history. And then, I don't know, that's the sort of story I don't think anyone who who hears it is going to ever forget. <laughs> the wig club. Yeah, and, and I, I love talking about when the royals have done scandalous things with their fashion or things that we... Because today, the royals, we see them as being this sort of paragon of conservative dressing and, and being very prim and proper, but their ancestors definitely, definitely weren't. And one of my biggest pet peeves when it comes to fashion history is when people perpetuate the idea that we're on sort of a downward slope from this glorious past where everyone was incredibly sensible and had perfect etiquette and you know everyone fell in line and conformed with society and if they didn't they were sort of shoved to the sides or punished and now we're at this time where women can wear what they want and show off what they want and people can play with their their gender expression and oh it's terrible terrible because really that's not how how it's been that's not what fashion history looks like. People have always enjoyed finding new ways to express themselves. And they've always looked for ways to be shocking and provocative or to set new trends or to just follow trends and to stick to the status quo. We haven't changed an awful lot since then. And it's a really harmful rhetoric to suggest otherwise. No, exactly. And the Often when I'm doing my podcast, I'll, I love when I find details about fashion or what people w- would wear, because like you said, it really humanizes the person in a way to just picture like, especially a royal, like they chose this outfit for a reason. And isn't that interesting? And what does that say about them? And it makes them not seem just like, oh, a face on a coin or something. It makes them seem like an interesting layered person. Yeah. And I think the royals really, throughout history, everyone has put that kind of thought into the clothes that they buy and the clothes that they wear. But the royals did it sort of to the absolute maximum because for most of history, all eyes were on them. So they knew that everything they wore had to send messages. And it's very interesting to see how that plays out in the modern monarchy because they've almost backed themselves into a corner now where we're so used to reading very intricate messages in their clothing that they they can't afford to stop because if they do, we're still going to keep looking for, for meaning in what they're wearing. And we might find meanings that they, they don't intend. Uh, and that could be detrimental to them and their public image. So that's something that they've had to really hold on to. Yeah, I'm not gonna, there's not time to get into the modern monarchy. But I just wanted to say one thing that I sometimes think of when any of the the women of the royal family today wear anything, you, someone can be like, oh, this is an ode to Princess Diana, because Princess Diana wore every color and pattern imaginable. So it's like every, <laughs> every time any of them wear anything, it's like, oh, well, Princess Diana one time wore a blue dress with stripes. It's like, yes, but <laughs> I, I can't imagine that amount. And also, why would they want to evoke anyway? So it's people read into everything. Yeah. Yeah. So your book is coming out. I mean, at the time that this interview comes out, which is in like two weeks, it will be out. People can get it. The Royal Wardrobe. 
Yes. Oh, it's so exciting. I'm sure it'll be interesting too to see because it's been out in the UK, but what difference or, you know, what sort of responses people are going to have in North America versus the UK and what? Yeah, I know a lot more of my followers um, are from North America. I think maybe it's because you guys have, you're a little bit further away from the royal family. You don't have to deal with the the difficult side of them. You can just sort of enjoy from a distance. So maybe that's where the fascination comes from. And so people can keep up with you. I'm sure you're going to have different interviews and events and things. And you're posting all that on your website, I assume? Yes. Yeah. Um, So I post a a lot on Instagram and on TikTok mainly. So on TikTok, I'm the Royal Wardrobe and on Instagram, I'm Rosie H. Hart. So you can find me there. Wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you. And thank you for writing this book, which is really, I love social history and I love fashion history. I love anything that doesn't get into the military side. And so your book was just exactly (laughs) the sort of history I love to read. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. So Rosie's book, The Royal Wardrobe, is now available in North America as well as in the UK. And you can get that from wherever you like to get your books from, from the library or from um, your local bookstore. If you want to buy a copy from bookshop.org, there's a link in the show notes. And when you buy using that link, then a little bit of money goes to help support me and this podcast. But again, so she's on TikTok at The Royal Wardrobe and she's on Instagram at Rosie H. Hart. And I'll put those links in the show notes as well, because she's such a fun person to follow. You can see she recently-ish posted a video uh, visiting the Francis Howard portrait in the National Portrait Gallery, which just warmed my heart because I love to see people talking about my beloved Francis Howard. You can also follow me on Instagram at Royal History Pod. And I'm also, I'm also on TikTok and I have been back there and using it a bit more recently. So there I'm just at Vulgar History. And also I have a website, which is vulgarhistory.com. There's a form there if you want to contact me, if you have thoughts about this podcast or suggestions of people you'd like to hear me talk about or to talk to if there's an author or historian who you think, or if you yourself are an author or historian, you can um, reach out using the contact form there or also email me at vulgarhistorypod at gmail.com. We have merch available at vulgarhistory.com slash store which takes you to a tea public store. If you're outside of the US, shipping tends to be better on Redbubble, where we also have merch at vulgarhistory.redbubble.com. And I do also want to mention that transcripts of recent episodes are available also on my website, vulgarhistory.com. Um, and those are done by Aveline Malik of The Wordery. Thank you so much, Aveline, for making this podcast more accessible to people who prefer to read text. And... We also have a Patreon, so you can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash Writer. And so what that is, is it's a service where you pledge some monthly amount and then you get benefits in return. So if you support the podcast at $1 a month, you get early ad-free access to all episodes. If you pledge $5 or more a month, you get access to bonus episodes as well. So that's Vulgar Peace Theater, where I talk about discussions of costume dramas with Alison Epstein and Lana Wood Johnson. There's also bonus episodes. A lot of them are So This Asshole, where I talk about gross men from history and also other things that are of interest. Like, for instance, 
on Patreon a bit ago, I did an episode where Allison joined me and we just talked about bush rangers, which are Australian sort of bandits. And because she and I simultaneously got really interested in bush rangers. And I think that's those are all my little notes. We're going to be back next week with another episode. And until then, you know, with Francis Howard and Anne of Denmark in our hearts, keep your pants on and your tits out. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumagi. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.